The satire is scattershot and the humor often forced, but the anger feels authentic and personal. That's from Richard Brody of New Yorker talking about The Bubble, a new comedy from Judd Apatow. This has got to be Cody's wheelhouse. He likes his comedies, a lot of big stars in this film, so that movie is currently out on Netflix. Uh, that is our feature review this week as well. I went and took the kids to see Sonic the Hedgehog 2, perhaps Jim Carrey's final movie ever. And for the old movies, A Fish Called Wanda. We're, a lot of comedies this week, all right? 1988 comedy, the rare comedy in which an actor won an Oscar. Kevin Klein won Best Supporting Actor. Uh, and our wild card, great guest today, Keith Phipps. Age of Cage, four decades of Hollywood through one singular career. We're talking about the great Nicolas Cage. So really good episode coming up today. And Cody, you've done your homework. I know next week we're going to talk about winning time, but uh, I believe you watched The Bubble. I don't know if you had time to watch I did watch The Wanda. Bubble. Yeah. I did not watch A Fish Called Wanda. I wanted to get to that. Didn't get to it. I did see The Bubble. Yeah. Why did Jim Carrey do Sonic the Hedgehog? Is it just a big pay? Like, what's going on there? I don't get that. Yeah, I think it's just a payday. I think it's just, you know what? Like, he did my movies lately. Like, we do Sonic the Hedgehog, and that's like, well, you know, there's going to be a sequel. I'll knock that out. Mm. But now, let's get into it. He said, this is probably it for him. He's like, I'm, I'm retiring from acting. You know, I'm just enjoying it my can't, family. It can't end with Sonic the Hedgehog. It cannot. We need something else. I don't. I, I always thought later in his career he was going to go do the serious thing. Yeah. I feel like he's got the chops to do like a serious role. It's weird that he's kind of fallen off. He did venture into that territory, right? Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. He Great did, movie. Um, the Truman Show, which had comedy and dramatic elements. Man on the Moon was a biopic, had some dramatic elements. Um, and by the way, you're right, Eternal Sunshine is a great movie. But yeah, I mean, he did that one show. It, was, it wasn't very good. It was on Showtime. What was it called? Kidding, I think, or Normal, whatever the hell it was. It wasn't particularly good, but that was, again, a serious type drama. It's about a guy who's like a comedian, but he ends up being a very you know serious drama story. But that was, that was his foray into drama. Yes, it was called Kidding. It only lasted two seasons. Kidding follows Jeff Pickles, a man who is iconic in children's television, a pillar of kindness and wisdom, and of course, his life takes a downward turn. I watched, I think, most of the first season, and I was like, this isn't a very good show. So Maybe he's just too expensive at this point, because I'm trying to do like figure out why he hasn't been like kind of like will smith even though later in his career the movies haven't been as well received as early on in his career but he's still will smith so he still gets the roles it's just weird that jim carrey's kind of fallen off yeah I, but i think listen by reading between the tea leaves here it's more of his own choice like i yeah. i think you're right there's probably a part of it is like now he just life. wants to paint doesn't he have like a big garage where he just paints huge artist he's one of these I, like odd creatives like, he's like he's just a little off the deep end with this creative stuff oh no question i mean the, the comedians in cars getting coffee episode with seinfeld was awesome like he's a really funny guy He's telling one liner. He's like, "Oh, let me, let me go show you my paintings." And you're right. He's got this cavernous building of just Jim yeah. and, and it's a lot of like political stuff. I mean, this is a couple years ago, so it was all just eviscerating Trump. And like, but it's really well done. Like, the guy's a talent. I mean, that is like mm -hmm. true art. I mean, it, I think it sells for. I don't want to say a princely sum. I think it does pretty well. Like, if Jim Carrey devoted himself simply to the arts, I think he would yeah. do quite well. He happens to be a twenty million dollar actor and uh, happens to do the arts as well. But yeah, he, he is. He's. Definitely an eccentric guy. I mean, I love him. He's Canadian. He's funny as hell, but definitely yeah. an eccentric guy. Um, I want more of him is what I'm saying here. I, I want more Jim Carrey. Yeah, I agree. We can't get enough of Jim Carrey. He's the best. Uh, let's just do a drive-by on Will Smith because, again, this is like when we were trying to get Michael Keaton into every episode. We'll get Will Smith in every episode for the foreseeable future. Ten years suspended by the Academy. It's notable because I didn't think they would do anything. I thought they would just say next year, you know what, don't show up. Uh, we're good. Just, you know, normally the guy who wins Best Actor presents Best Actress, but because of your boorish behavior, just take a knee. But no, they're like, we're giving you 10 years. And I think this is an example where clearly social media and the uproar around this event impacted the Academy. Because in the moment, 
right? Nothing really happened. They didn't. He wasn't dismissed. He gives a horrific speech, blah, blah, blah. And after that, it was kind of like, yeah, nothing's really going to happen. And I was like, no, people were so pissed. And Academy members have been so heavily criticized. And the Academy itself has been so criticized. And Wanda Sykes is going on TV going, hey, they owe me an apology. And Chris Rock hasn't really said anything yet aside from it's coming at some point. So like the Academy felt like we got to take a stand. And him saying he's resigning from the Academy was just hysterical. I'm like, great. So you can still get nominated. You can still win awards. Basically, you just can't vote. Who cares about that? So 10 years, Will Smith is not allowed to be at the Academy Awards. Now, again, double-check the, the fine print. I believe any film he's in can be nominated. I believe he can be nominated, but he just can't attend the ceremony for 10 years. So if you're asking me, is it a fair punishment? It's definitely more than I thought they would have done. Um, I still would have liked to have seen no nominations for five years. That's just me. But 10 years you're not allowed, that's pretty bold. Considering in the moment, Chris, I wouldn't have thought they were going to do much. Are we allowed to tell the audience the person involving this story that we're aiming to get on the show? Should we not say the name? Sure, no, go for it. What do you want? We're, 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 we're going for, a, or we want a rock, right? We're trying to get a rock on the show. Yeah, so afterwards, Ben Lyons texted me and goes, I'm actually <laughs> friends with his brother. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, I think it's Tony Rock. And he was like, I'm like, give me his number. He's like, all right. And I go, do you think he'd come on? He's like, listen, I don't think he's going to come on just to talk about his brother. But if you sell the Levitard stuff hard, like Metal Arc, he's a big basketball guy. You want to talk playoffs? I believe he's a Nets fan, Steelers fan. He goes, you go that route? He goes, maybe he'll do it. Like, he, he knows. How's it going? How's it going for us? How's it going? I haven't, have texted, we asked I haven't texted him yet. We have so many guests. We have so many authors here. I'm like, we've got three yeah. authors lined but up. But we we, we'll squeeze in a rock, man. No, no you're right. It's, is, not, it's this, not like we're going to bump this, this guy. No, you're right. We're not going to bump <laughs> Tony Rock for one of, all respect. One of these three authors we have coming up. But I haven't texted yet. Ben said, the way you got to do it, though, is mention the Nets, Mets, Steelers, go down that route. Let's get him on. Yeah, Let's the go, go the black. Do, do the NBA angle. I like that. I mean, like plus, that. is about to start. I heard your big NBA guy. I know you did mm -hmm. an NBA show with Ben Lyons. Do you want to talk about that? And what happened to your brother? Your stand-up, we don't have to, we'll, we'll wedge that in at the end. Well, your stand-up, we want to promote that. We, we're we big for comedians here. We're big We're big for comedians we here. We're definitely big comedians. Um, uh, Cinephobe, by the way, joining LAF. Yeah, How do you feel about that? I wanted to say, that's big news, right? I mean, listen, I mean, it's a great guy. I've been on his podcast. He's been on our podcast, of course, talking about TV. Yeah, let's be so. friends with Phobe, right? No let's question. be friends There's with Phobe. There's no reason to have any uh, animosity. Let's all hate Samson. I about to say, we're already united in the anti-Samson <laughs> front. So Cinephobe, we're all fans of. I don't know why people want to make it a rivalry because it's never been a rivalry from our end. It's right? the Cinna. You guys both have a podcast that starts with Cinna. But I've like, done that's... their pod. He's done my pod. Like we're, I mean, I guess you could argue Samson has also done that, but everyone knows we don't like Samson. If there was a guy that all of a sudden worked for Lebetard Show and his name was Chris Stoff, yeah. I'd be like, no. I mean, even though there is another Chris here now, but whatever, you get the point. I get it. Because of the Cinna feels a bit rivalry, but, <laughs> but Cinephobe is now aboard. But listen, they've got some work to do because you tell me the numbers. I mean, aside from any podcast with Levitard's name in it right mm -hmm. now for Metal Arc, we're number one, right? Like we're crushing it. So Cinephobe's got some yeah, work. Yeah, but, they're, but that, they're a good pod. So like I expect them to to compete with us. Like I'm not going to badmouth Phobe. I'm a, I'm no, a, no, I'm a big Phobe guy. But is this... I, I love that. I love a meme. Okay. Is this good news because we're getting more movie talk or is this bad news because it's eating into our audience? I think it's different shows, though. Like, I think, like, if they want to, like, laugh at terrible movies, you want to celebrate and discuss good movies. I mean, you also do bad movies, too. We're a little more range here on the file. But, uh, you know, I'm just joking. See, like, see, I just, I can't help myself. Like, it just, I want to be friends with them, and I, like, I just like to joke around and do little shots. But, like, it's all I think it's two different shows. Like, yes, yeah. like, outside of the fact that it's their movie podcast, that's the really the only similarities. Congrats, and welcome to Cinefo before Chris yes. throws any more daggers in their direction. Ah, uh, 
I'm a big phobe guy we are when I'm not wa- listening to Cinephobe. Yeah, we're not yeah, phobic right. when it comes to Cinephobe. I do want to thank everyone who listened to my podcast with Jimmy Traina, Sports Illustrated Media Podcast. Uh, it was my annual appearance. Jimmy had me on a year ago, and then he messaged me like late Monday night. He goes, hey, can you come on? And I said, I don't know. What's the hook here? He goes, well, it's opening day. I want to talk about Tiger Woods. I'm like, I'm not a golf guy. He's like, perfect. Neither am I. We'll talk Tiger Woods. Uh, <laughs> he wants to talk movies. Will Smith. I said, great. So thanks to everybody who listened to that uh, podcast appearance with Jimmy Traina. He said Stu Gotts on before. He loves Stu. He loves Russo. Uh, so hopefully people enjoyed that. Um, let's go to the movies this week, though, because I think, like I said, we've got some good Nicholas Cage stuff coming up here, but I want to talk about the bubble because I know Cody watched it. A group of actors and actresses stuck inside a pandemic bubble at a hotel attempt to complete a film. It's directed by Judd Apatow, one of my favorite filmmakers. This guy knows comedy, okay, whether it's the 40-year-old version, whether it's his work on the Larry Sanders show, whether it's his stand-up, whether it's his books, whether it's the producing he does, girls. I mean, Judd Apatow knows comedy, which is why it was so shocking. Prior to seeing the movie, I saw Rotten Tomatoes at 23%. I'm like, wow, this might be the worst reviews of Judd Apatow's career. They're crushing it. I said, okay, maybe he wasn't that involved. No, no, he directed it. He co-wrote it. He produced it. I'm like, all right. So I watched the film with a bit of a jaded eye on Netflix. But going to be honest, Chris, maybe the critics are wrong on this one. I enjoyed the movie. Maybe I was just eager for a good comedy as Chris is cringing at my positive review. Maybe I'm just pro-Apatow. But let's give you the, the, the background on it. So you get a bunch of people together. Again, famous people, they're looking to make a film. It's one of these disaster-type movies that send up a satire of like a dinosaur-type, Jurassic Park-type movie. Uh, and you can kind of predictably see what happens, right? They've all got big egos. It's Hollywood taking aim at itself. Kate McKinnon's playing this um, <laughs> studio chief who's away via FaceTime and barking orders at everybody. David Duchovny, who I've always loved, has that great laissez-faire attitude. He's got an on-again, off-again relationship with Apatow's real-life wife, Leslie Mann. Which, by the way, Apatow, he just loves showing his wife like naked or just getting hammered by another actor. But Duchovny once, him like, oh my God, this guy's wife. Yeah. But he, he does like doing that in his movies. I mean, check out, uh, this is 40, Paul Rudd. Yep. Um, anyways, you got Maria Bacalov over from uh, obviously the Borat film not Borat but you know what I'm saying the Sacha Baron Cohen film um, other actors I really like Keegan-Michael Key playing a guy who's like kind of like a Scientologist like he's got his own kind of rhythm going on anyways they're all stuck in one room together the TikTok star TikTok you got star. the TikTok, the TikTok star. star so yeah. he's hitting all these rhythms I thought it was well edited I like the montage when they're losing their mind you got uh, Pablo Pascal just wants to have sex and Maria Bakalova he just wants to do drugs the whole time and so the story, again, like I said, it's a satire of Hollywood making fun of itself and really kind of focusing on what we're all dealing with and still dealing with, which is the pandemic, which is... That's the lead. That, it's a COVID movie. It's, a COVID it's literally movie. a movie. And, and I remember when I, a year or two ago, I was saying to myself, we're going to have some shows and some movies in a couple of years that are going to be around COVID. And I can't wait for it. And I was wrong. Because it was, I, I did not like this movie. I, I, wow. th- I didn't think it was funny. I thought that obviously there, it was like the standard COVID humor. You know what I mean? It was like, oh, we got to wear a mask. Like it was very. I, I, I'm, I'm being honest here. I didn't even get through it. No, because so this, this is interesting. Because I'm with you. Like I was very jaded going in. I'm like, I'm, and I, I asked it myself similarly. I'm like, if it's only 20 minutes, it's 20 minutes. I'll just tell Cody we're not reviewing it. It's not good. But it kind of grew on me as it went along. You punted long before, and I, I, I punted. I'm going to guess what your issue is because I, I can see where you're coming from predictable jokes, right? Yes. Hollywood making fun of itself. Yes. They're all egotistical. Yes. They're all spending money left and right. They have no feel. They're tired. And it was just like, I kept watching scenes. It's like, oh, there was a joke there, but I'm not laughing or smiling. I don't know. I just didn't, I, I was like an hour in and I'm just like, yeah, I don't like this movie at all. And it's the first one, I think, in the cinephile. Like, I've watched so few movies that we've reviewed. I've generally liked most of them. And this was the first one where I'm like, I'm excited. I'm going to have a hot take. Terrible movie. Judd Apatow. Big fan of yours. Yeah. Love all the movies you referenced. Love them. 
I, I just couldn't do this one. I was like, I get what he's doing there. He's trying to do a movie for the times. Right. There was one good idea in the movie. Some guy pitched some idea for a comp- like an app where you could have sex with somebody from across the world. <laughs> that's a great joke. That was like the, the Hindu most- guy is amazing. Yeah. That was the most memorable part of the whole movie for me. I was like, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. Yeah, he goes, he goes, there'll be a glove you could put on and you could have sex with that person. You could, you could even use it anally. And that's yeah. where the guy's reaction. Yeah. Uh, that part was funny. I laughed at that. I was like, that's a good idea. That's clever. So if I look at Apatow's movies, the four-year-old virgin you and I both love. Oh. Knocked up, hysterical. Epic. Uh, this is 40. I liked it. A little long, but I liked it. Train wreck, really funny. Yes. Uh, funny people I've never actually seen. I heard mixed reviews. The Adam Sandler one. Funny people, it's also good. That's what I mean. I, I don't. And the case of Staten Island, I did not care for. So look, yeah. we're looking at eighty percent. He is an A in our books. For you not to like a, a work of this man's oeuvre, that's pretty shocking. So that's two in a row for him. That he's kind of Matt Staten Island. <laughs> <laughs> Little slumpsky, little slumpsky for Apatow. But the good news is he's got a documentary coming out about George Carlin next month, which we're hoping to get him on the podcast. Ooh, so I think that's, that's going to be a hit. Oh, I love the movie actually. <laughs> In case the PR people are listening, Chris and I made it clear. We do love his work. Just, you know, I, I, I can see where you're coming from. I'll be honest. I'm giving it a lukewarm two and a half Maple Leafs. I don't want people running out saying, oh, my God, Vert called it the funniest movie of the year. No, no. I think considering his work, it's not his strongest. That is absolutely clear. But I was chuckling along. I, I enjoy – how about this? I enjoy movies about Hollywood self-referencing. I enjoy satire. I enjoy the self-parody. It's probably more humor that I like. Right? I like those movies about movies. Like I do, I agree with you. The premise is okay. I like a movie about a movie being made, yes. but it's just this one. This one was a miss. Fair point. And to be honest, most- look at me with a hot take. I'm excited. Oh. I, I'm like, I'm, I'm glad I finally don't like a movie. Now I feel like a balanced movie reviewer. <laughs> There's definitely more people agreeing with you than me. I mean, like I said, these reviews are pretty scathing. A Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, when lay my the bubble never feels like it's the lacerating satire it wanted to be. How about Jessica King of Los Angeles Times? A movie so staggeringly unfunny as to be barely recognizable as comedy at all. You could tell I was looking for reviews that said what I was thinking. <laughs> no, I like what you do. You call together three reviews, and it's like one positive, one negative, and one just kind of quirky. So this time yeah. you just got three negative reviews. I already knew. I'm like, he's not a fan of the bubble. Let's knock this baby out. Uh, anyways, check out the film if you like. It's on Netflix. I'm giving it two and a half Maple Leafs. I'm going to guess Chris is giving it one. You couldn't get through it. You didn't even watch it. That's zero I'm gonna, Maple Yeah, Leafs. I'm going to give it one Maple Leafs. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's do Sonic the Hedgehog too quickly. The manic Dr. Robotnik returns to Earth the new ally. Knuckles, the Echidna, Sonic, and his new friend Tails is all that stands in their way. It's directed by Jeff Fowler. It's not particularly special. Listen, the kids went. They enjoyed the popcorn and slushy. I was just, uh, I mean, it's long for a kids movie. Like, kids movie's going to be like 90 minutes, okay? I don't want to. Yep. This was like two hours and five minutes. I'm like, God, this is a long Did you see the movie. SNL parody song where they like, it was like an SNL music video of like, I'm looking for a short ass movie. <laughs> that is actually true especially when it comes to these kid movies, especially when I'm locked in that theater. By the way, 48 bucks for tickets, Saturday, Sunday matinee, 32 bucks popcorn slushy, 80 bucks to watch Sonic the Hedgehog 2. And I'm giving it one and a half Maple Leafs. Like, it's just a very mm-hmm. average movie. Having said that, I forgot to mention last week, The Outfit, which I mentioned the Mark Rylance film. I saw that on, uh, again, Tuesday matinee, because we've changed our times now. We're recording on Monday, and then the podcast is being released Tuesday. So I've got the Tuesday. Oh, so your movie time has been shrunk a little. So the- well, I guess you got later in the week now, you yeah, but you're right. Normally, I was like, for a Friday movie that opens, I could normally see the movie Monday. And I'm like, no, I've got to get the movie in Friday night, Saturday, or Sunday. Boom, we're taping Monday. Anyways, I was like, you're right. The movie time on the back end picks up. So I watched the outfit Tuesday. I think it was 583 Like, you can go see a movie for less than $6. Like, that's incredible. Yeah. Like, there's something about the Tuesday cheap day. It still exists. Uh, I mean, love it's it. Awesome. It's the best. 
Uh, anyways, Sonic's not great. Uh, the only thing I'm notable about is Jim Carrey. We love Jim Carrey. He's got a couple of funny lines in there. At one point, he flosses, has a couple of raps. James Marsden. There's this odd kind of like subplot, which is Shamar Moore, who's this very attractive, good-looking black guy named Randall, who's marrying a woman who's not very attractive. So that that was one of the main things that stuck out to me in the movie. I'm like, wait, why are they getting married? Why am I stuck on this? Why am I stuck in this movie theater right now? But if you are there for uh, Idris Elba, fantastic as Knuckles, because he's evil Knuckles. He's got such power in his fist. Uh, James Marsden plays the lead. You know, there, there's some charming moments, I guess, along the way. But uh, it was basically a cash grab sequel, if there ever was one. If your kids enjoy Sonic, they'll enjoy this one. And I was, much like Sonic, willing to get out of the theater as quick as I could. I'll give it one and a half Maple Leafs. Sonic the Hedgehog 2. couple reviews here for you. Uh, Nick Shaker of the Daily Beast. Good one by Cody. Anyone over the age of 12 had best beware. <laughs> Bill Jabiri, who's excellent, he's a great critic, New York Magazine, Vulture. The first Sonic worked because it refused against all odds to turn entirely into product. Sonic 2, by contrast, is a disappointment, but an inevitable one. Well, yeah, sequels are generally pretty lousy. And John Wenzel, dismiss it as another cash-in, you wouldn't be wrong. All right, there's your reviews there. Okay, um, should we get to Age of Cage now? You want to do the old movie first? Yeah, let's, go to, let's get to this guy. Keith Phipps, I've read the book Age of Cage. We're talking Nicolas Cage. Next. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, a real pleasure bringing Keith Phipps. He's the author of Age of Cage, four decades of Hollywood through one singular career. I'm so happy they sent us the book because I love the book. Keith, congratulations on a terrific achievement and a very timely one because Nick Cage's renaissance, he's back now. Pig uh, is a film that he calls the favorite of his own performances. He's got his new film coming out now, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. So this is the perfect time for a Nick Cage book. Congrats. Well, thank you. First, thanks for all the kind words about the book. Uh, you know, a lot of hard work, and, and the timing did work out really well, so uh, it's, it's nice. What I do with the book, so listen, everyone else who interviews you is going to go, all right, leaving Las Vegas, then The Rock. I just kind of earmark the stuff that I like, so it's going to be kind of all over the place, but bear with me, because that's how I do things. Nick Cage. Nice. Yeah, this is page 100. This is shocking to me. You're talking about after you did It Could Happen to You. Nice little charming comedy, right? Counter-programming. And the fact that Jim Carrey topped the box office that weekend with The Mask. Cage himself came this close to his co starring in Carrie's third 1994 hit. We talked at length about trying to do a movie together. In fact, he wanted me to be in Dumb and Dumber with him, and then I wanted to do a much smaller movie instead called Leaving Las Vegas. That decision would soon put Cage on a different path. Could you imagine? Leaving Las Vegas is arguably his best performance. He wins an Academy Award, but what if he'd been in Dumb and Dumber? That's amazing. 
There's so many sliding doors moments in the in Cage's career, and that's a that's a big one there that kind of puts him down a comedy path instead of an action path. I mean, what if Superman Lives had happened is is definitely a big one. What if he'd taken the Matrix or Lord of the Rings, both of which were were possibilities at one point? It's, it's kind of fascinating to think about these parallel universes where, where different choices are made. I mean, I, I just imagine Jeff Daniels in that you know the scene in the bathroom. Imagine Nick Cage having that issue with all the <laughs> farting in the next room. It's crazy. Um, Leaving Las Vegas, I think, is his best movie. It's obviously the performance that the Academy rewarded with an Academy Award. I love that this quote here by Mike Figgis, when Scorsese found De Niro, that is how I feel. But the two would never work together again. Cage's own future, whatever he imagined might look like as he accepted the Oscar, would take him elsewhere. It's amazing because it really does hit the high. Like as, as far as on a, on a personal level, a career level, this is a film that's down and dirty. It's, it's so gritty and yet so honest and authentic. He himself figured no one's really going to see it. And instead, the Academy sweeps up at it. I remember Siskel and Ebert raved about it. The fact that Elizabeth Shue playing a hooker with a heart of gold, she gets nominated for Best Actress, and he plays an alcoholic trying to drink himself to death, wins an Academy Award. It's a great film. And for those who haven't seen it, I'm curious your thoughts, what makes it special. I think it's because it took those cliches, which you've seen in other films and just turn them inside out and it just had a real authenticity to it and Cage is so good because he's never more fun than when he's drunk you know you see these movies about alcoholics and they're so despairing but he doesn't play his hand like he's actually a happy fun drunk it's the crash and the shakes that make it so unbearable for him yeah I think a lot of that I think you're right it does it does (laughs) you know, uh, skirt cliche and then doesn't surrender to them. I think a lot of that's in the performance. I, I think Shu and Cage are both so good that, that she's more than just, uh, you know, a hooker with a heart of gold who, and more than just sort of a fantasy of someone who kind of comes in and is, is kind of an angel of death for him. I mean, they, they play those roles, but there's much, much, much more to it. Like, and you're right, he is fun. I mean, there's part of what makes the film so interesting and beguiling and kind of creepy is how much he is happily drinking himself to the death like in that early scene in the in the in the, in the liquor store when he's just given up and he's going to buy every bottle of liquor and he's just having the time of his life picking up booze that he knows will kill him uh, slowly if not if not you know but but definitely will kill him Remember that scene in the escalator? He goes, let's get a drink. Like, he's just he's yep. always happy and upbeat, ready to get after it. But it's, yeah. it ends up being a very despairing film. Um, I'm introducing my now soon-to-be 14-year-old son to Face Off. Because it was on AMC the other day. I said, okay, I think you're at the age now you can watch Face Off. So they blurted out a few parts. I had to kind of get quick on the trigger. The, I, the scene where he feels up the girl at the start. I'm like, okay, that probably wasn't... I wish they edited that <laughs> part out. But it, it's a great Nicolas Cage performance and a hell of a movie. I mean, I love Face Off when it came out. And I love watching it again now. I loved your description of John Woo, who... I wish he'd done more. I mean, you're right about what he did, and guys like you and me would know it, meaning The Killer and Hard Boiled, those great Asian films. But I think for American audiences, they go, all right, he's the guy that did Hard Target, which was recut. Broken Arrow's decent, but Face Off's his masterpiece. Like, I wish mm-hmm. I wish there was, I mean, Mission Impossible 2, John Woo did, which is very good, but I wish there'd been more Face Offs. I love your description of Woo's work. This is great. Looked less to music videos and commercials for inspiration than to the stylized violence of Sam Peckinpah, the moral conflicts of Martin Scorsese, and the existential isolation of Jean-Pierre Melville. Wu had found his voice making action films that doubled as blood-drenched explorations of his Christian faith, and I thought it was perfect for Cage, who likes to go big. He liked to, you know, German expressionist filmmaking. And the, the scene in the prison I just watched again where he's punched and then he starts crying. I'm like, it's all that emotion. It's perfect because that's what Wu wants, and that's what Cage can give him. Yeah, and it's so much of that is, like you said, is it has its roots in expressionism and silent film acting. Where, uh, I mean, he ends the film by by, by screaming his name, <laughs> but <laughs> but but a lot of it is just his facial expressions. You can see, and it's all very legible, like f- you know, four different. 
tortured emotions that he goes through in a matter of seconds. It's great. That's why it is really one of the best. I think the best scenes in, in his filmography. Yeah, it's an incredible performance and a great movie. I hope everyone's checking it out. I, I met Nicolas Cage once. It was at the Sundance Film Festival. I was terribly ill. I had an abscess in my throat. I was gutting it out. Eventually, I found out I had the abscess. I just thought I had a sore throat. But I'm popping, you know, painkillers, whatever. I got to meet Nicolas Cage. He was promoting Mandy, and it's my first time mm. at Sundance. For those who are unaware, it's Utah. It's cold, and we're in this uh, restaurant area, and each person's going up there. Now, this is in the height of what's happened to Nicolas Cage. He's making a lot of bad movies. The mm -hmm. guy, two before me brings up the dinosaur skulls. Like he starts talking about, hey, some of the movies you've made, some of the money you've spent. And I could just tell Cage is stiffening up. By the way, he's wearing like a big fur jacket, red tinted sunglasses, like totally has his look down, got his handlers with him. And, and I'm, I'm like, you know, a few feet away. And I could just hear him go, what was that? I know what you're trying to do. Because the guy was trying to piss him off. Be like, oh, uh, mm -hmm. You spent $100 million on this. And I was like, hey, dude, like, you know, we're done here. Like, we're done. Boom, get him out of here. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, someone's going someone's gonna to kick this guy's ass on Nicolas Cage's behalf. So I'm obviously very scared. I was like two, two interviews later. And we're talking. I'm asking about Mandy, which is a really fun film. I'm glad you talked about Mandy in your movie. But I said to him, and I, my throat was like, I'm like, you know, I've got to tell you the movie that I loved. He's kind of leaning in. I go, Martin Scorsese, Bringing Out the Dead. I go, it's such an underrated film. I thought you were incredible. Mm -hmm. And he lit up. He was so happy, Keith. He was like, yeah. He was like, oh, man. At the end of the interview, he even made a point of saying, bringing up the dead, man. Like, that's, that's, that's where I'm at. Um, I like the way you wrote about it. You said, bringing up the dead attracted some critical champions. More critics treated it as a worthwhile but flawed effort, and some regarded it as an outright disappointment. In the village voice, Jay Hoberman complained of deja vu. In some ways, the movie itself invites frustration by depicting frustration that there's no breakthrough here. But it now seems so odd a film so ambitious and filled with remarkable moments could be taken for granted, but such was the spirit of 99. You got Scorsese, you got Paul Schrader, Gallery of Lonely Men. This should have been an epic hit, but it wasn't. It wasn't at all, and it's kind of strange. I, I, I mean, 99 was just such a, a, a banner year for great films and new voices that it almost you can almost understand why, oh, just another Martin Scorsese, Paul Schrader movie uh, with a great Nicolas Cage performance, well, whatever, you know. But, but, I mean, I think that movie stands up really well. Yeah. Uh, it's such a great portrait of New York at a particular time too. I mean, I, I love how the opening crawl is like uh, pre-Giuliani, <laughs> you know, just it's set in the early nineties, <laughs> but like so much had changed in between the beginning and the end of that decade. Uh, one thing about Cage, and again, he's got so many different facets to him, whether it's, you know, serious actor, whether it's action star and the rock, you talk about how important that is, Con Air, very tongue in cheek. Guy's funny. Adaptation is mm -hmm. one of the funniest movies ever. I mean, the, the fact he's able to nail both those parts, the fact he's playing Donald and Charlie Kaufman, Charlie Kaufman, who's self-loathing and insecure and just riddled with self-doubt, and then Donald, who's the fun one. I mean, anybody who ever, I think, doesn't appreciate Nicolas Cage's career should watch Adaptation. I think it's a genius movie and a great performance. I'm so glad he was recognized by the Academy for that one. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, two great performances, really. But I, I think if, if there's a through line to his career, it's that he can go to these eccentric comic extremes without losing sight of this character's humanity. Like, I mean, Donald Kaufman is, is just a goofball, but, you know, spoiler, I guess. But like when when bad things happen at the end, it's really moving. I mean, he, he's just and he just without you know, breaking character or changing radically, it just kind of segues from this comic performance to this really tragic performance. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's great stuff. I've read that John Travolta and Nick Cage lived together briefly before shooting Face Off. To be a fly on that wall in that apartment, what do we imagine that that looked like? Yeah, I actually don't. That's this is actually new to me. This is a detail I don't know, but I can. That oh. would be a very, uh, a very eventful uh, cohabitation. I know that they study each other's dailies a lot, uh, and then I think, if I if I remember correctly, it was 
the assassinate the scene that opens the film is the first scene filmed, and Travolta's like, oh, "Okay, this is the bar." Okay, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, yeah, that's 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 a that's a good movie. Another film, which again I love. This is what probably the best compliment I could pay you, Keith, is after reading your book, I had to go and watch a movie, and the movie I watched mm-hmm. was Joe, David Gordon yeah. Green's film. And I love George Washington, David Gordon Green's first film. Uh, me and Cody have reviewed Prince Avalanche here on the podcast, and I never saw it, and kind of like the way you described it, it's one of those movies that kind of just slipped through the cracks, and I loved it. I thought it was a brilliant mm-hmm. film, and I love it because it's got one of my favorite old-time actors, which is Robert Mitchum. Um, David Gordon Green wrote in a letter he sent to Cage, I want Robert Mitchum for the role, but he died. Will you please help me out? <laughs> what a great line by David Gordon Green. There's not much of Mitchum in the final performance, but the spirit of countless terse, haunted tough guys trying to stay out of trouble hangs over Cage's work in Joe. Green used Westerns as a model, particularly Shane. Cage drew on Samurai films you talk about rich authentic subtle uh lived in emotional poignant uh, joe's a hell of a movie i'm so glad you wrote about it yeah it's a great performance i think there's a, a few performances in the career pig being another one birdie uh, maybe a film that i'm not sure people revisit all that often but that really show he can do these really great naturalistic performances of really intense unmannered uh work I, I, and joe, joe's fantastic I, if you know with the beard and with the you know, low voice and like sort of the, the soft talk. It's he's almost unrecognizable in that movie. Like if you didn't know it was Nicolas Cage, it might take a moment to figure out that it's Nicolas Cage. Completely, because I kept waiting like a Wednesday when he's going to be turning to Nicolas Cage. He didn't. He didn't do as as one uh, at one point he said to someone. I, think, I can't remember what movie it was, but he said, "Oh, you want me to give you the full Cage?" Like he knows what mm-hmm. they want, but he never does that. Like, and this is a character, by the way, who's haunted by a brutal, violent past, who's trying to avenge the fact that Ty Sheridan's character is being abused by his father. Like he could have that moment where he can go big and just ah, but he he never does. It's almost like I, I don't know if he resisted the impulse or the way that David Gordon Green was directing him. But I, I'm really glad you talked about Joe. It's it's a hell of a movie and. Uh, I wish more people had seen it. Uh, I like this part too. You said at times Joe plays like a response to the Nicolas Cage loses his shit video. Like mm-hmm. he's aware of the fact that in some ways, well, not in some ways, he has been a parody of himself with what he does. So it's almost like he's cognizant of it, but smart enough to avoid that where need be. If the movie demands that, then he can do that. But if he doesn't want to do it, he won't do it as well. Yeah, I think the problem with also with those YouTube compilations, the, the Nicolas Cage losing his shit, I think is the actual name of the, the most famous one, but there, there are others. Like, it, it removes all context. You know, there, there's a scene in Matchstick Man, which was, was another kind of, I think it's a really good overlooked um, Nicolas Cage performance and film, where he just completely loses it in, in a pharmacy. But the whole, you know, that's one explosive moment in the film that's been kind of been building to the entire time, you know, and and you just take those big moments out of context. Yeah, some of them are pretty funny, but at the same time, and I'm not sure anything really redeems the Wicker Man, but, but, you know, at the same time, I I think you you lose a lot of what is going on around them. Great point by community creator. Dan Harmon, who said of the episode in which they talked about Cage, unless you're a total cynical dick, you have to embrace the fact Nicolas Cage is a pretty good actor. He's in a lot of weird, dumb movies, but that was supposed to be the point of the episode, that Nicolas Cage is a metaphor for God or for for society or for the self or something. It's like, what is Nicolas Cage? What is he? Is he an idiot or a genius? Can you write him off or is he inexplicably bound to your soul? So what is the answer? Nicolas Cage, one of our greatest actors or what? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I can answer that without any hesitation at all. And, you know, some, you know, having seen all the movies um, and with a couple of exceptions, I feel like at the time when he was really when the financial problems and other stuff became public, 
uh, a couple of movies made around then, he's never checked out. He's always fully engaged. Like part of my sort of proof of concept when I was trying to figure out this, if I wanted to do this book or not, is I, I just chose a random VOD film I'd never seen called 211, which is not good. Uh, but but his performance is really, he's going for something. There's like neat physical gestures, the way he interacts with characters, uh, the sadness with which he carries himself. Like he's bringing... Uh, you know, uh, bringing more than the film maybe demands, and uh, more than he was certainly contractually obligated to bring, and, and and it's worth it. Yeah, sometimes he was doing movies for the paycheck. Of course, he was you know near bankrupt. He had to work his way out of this financial difficulty, but he was still committed to the performance. He was still showing up on time. He'd show up early. He did the work. He was never he was never mailing in the work. Maybe the choices could have been better, but he was always there. And he's talked about those personal problems. The fact that a lot of it was bad real estate. He feels that stocks are like mm-hmm. gambling. Okay, I'll do real estate. No, he shouldn't have bought eight houses and castles and all the rest of it. But I applaud you for the book because it really does focus in the movies. You're not focusing on the tawdry aspects of his personal life. Yes. You mention, okay, this is his fourth marriage, or something's happening, least some repressed, etc. This is where the financial living is getting worse. But like, you literally watch all these movies and then have like, you know, capsule reviews of all of his work, even the past decade, which has been a lot of tough to stomach through. Did you get any pushback from the publisher, anyone saying, hey, Keith, come on, sell the book, include the salacious stuff? Or did they understand your approach was, I want to focus on his movies? No, I was really lucky to find an editor, James Malia, at uh, at Holt, who who got what I was going for and was really supportive of it. Um, who you know didn't want a jokey cage book or a coffee table book or or sort of an extension of the memes um, and, or a tawdry biography. Uh, and like you know, I'm I'm not you know, immune to being interested in knowing the tragic details of anyone's life. But I was really <laughs> interested in writing about them insofar as it, it made a difference on his work. You know, I mean, uh, the Lisa Marie, you know, it's Mary Lisa Marie Presley, you know, whatever. Uh, I'm sure there's a tumultuous story there, but it was more about how it became, you know, Nicholas Cage obsessed with Elvis. He's so obsessed with Elvis, he marries Elvis' daughter, married Elvis's daughter, which, you know, is very little basis in fact. And uh, but it certainly distorted how people saw him. So if I had to go his best films, I'm going Bringing Out the Dead, Adaptation, Face Off, Pig, and Joe. That's probably a pretty good five for me. Do you have a top five for me? Oh, jeez. I don't, you know, it changes all the time. But I mean, my sentimental favorite is Raising Arizona because that was just sort of a formative film for me as someone who was going to movies as a junior high kid. It's like, who is this Nicolas Cage fellow? Who is this Holly Hunter person? Who are these Coen brothers? I'm going to follow their careers, you know. But so that's, I mean, that's a real favorite. Um, should I should have a top five at hand. But I really do like Mandy a lot because I don't think another actor could have pulled that off. Like the scene where he's, you know, he drinks the whole body bottle of vodka and, and mourns his wife. It's like, <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's funny, but it's uncomfortable funny. And it's like, I think people just aren't used to seeing that much raw emotion. Uh, the one I really think is overlooked, a great Cage performance is overlooked, and um, uh, is uh, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, the film mm-hmm. he made with Werner Herzog, which kind of came out at the height of, you know, Cage as YouTube fodder. Uh, the, the the trailer, like, plays the most outrageous moments. and But I think at heart, it's a really deep and good film about loss and sin and redemption and and how do you become a you know once you've done so much bad stuff how do you become a good person again or can you you know it's 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 a really good one um you know there's 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 more good stuff in the lost years that you might imagine t- uh to like the film called mom and dad i'm, I'm really fond of and um uh matchstick man you know i mentioned that before that's that's an underrated one too uh, worst films of his? Is there a top three worst? I mean, you, you sifted through some bad movies. Like, I don't know how you went through this last decade of his career, but it's pretty tough. Yeah, there's, you know, there's more near misses in there than you might imagine, and a handful of really interesting films. But yeah, there's some really bad ones, too. And for me, the low point is, is Rage, which is just this completely 
by the book, Revenge Thor from 2014. It's one of the ones where he does not feel particularly engaged with it at all. It's the same year he did Left Behind, the right. uh, faith-based apocalyptic thing. Yeah. Uh, there's, there, but, you know, I think more often you'll find, you know, there's just some dull stuff like, you know, films I, I, I remember, sort of, like Kill Chain. <laughs> but um, uh, more often you'll find, you know, things where he, he, like, there's some real weird ones. Like, Between Worlds is not a gr- not a good movie, I wouldn't say, but it's this kind of strange David Lynch homage. At one point, he's he's holding a book of, of erotica, it says Memories by Nicolas Cage on it. <laughs> you know, it's it's crazy stuff. Uh, inconceivable. Yeah, I see you gave one star to That's pretty bad. I've yeah. never seen... I mean, I love Paul Schrader, and he's, I forgot Willem Dafoe's. I got to watch Dog Eat Dog, but you gave it two Maple Leafs. You said it's horrible. You know, Schrader is formidable, and, and it's fun to see him with Dafoe, but I think it's a tough film to watch. It, it's just a real, it's like a black comedy that just forgets to be funny at all, which is kind of mean. Uh, I do like the, the other one they did t- together, uh, Dying of the Light, is more interesting. Yeah, I do have to look that one up. And uh, I forgot to mention Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. He was great in that, playing with Spider-Man in Film Noir. That was a good little Nicolas Cage movie. It was, yeah, and I think that was my, my daughter's introduction to Nicolas Cage. <laughs> There's not not that many uh, Nicolas Cage movies you can share with with a ten year old. Um, have you seen the unbearable weight of massive talent, which is coming out in theaters? I think in a couple weeks, right? Yeah. I just saw it this weekend, and I, to my relief, I really liked it. You know, because nice. it's it's been, it's been you know, I was aware of it the whole time I was writing the movie. It's like, well. Does this make my book irrelevant? Uh, or and if it's bad, that's that's not good. No, no. It's, I think it's really fun. It's it's he's does he's real good at being self-deprecating, but it's actually a real character. Like right. the, the Nick Cage of the of the movie is is someone with like insecurities and and need and uh, it's it's a fun and he and Pedro Pascal are a great buddy team comedy. So yeah, I was I was really happy with it. Yeah, I read the backstory to it. He was like, "Listen, I I don't curse as much as this Nicolas Cage, and uh-huh. I, I've got I've got a few issues with it. But I guess he got the script sent to him like five times. Eventually, like, all right, fine, I'll read it. And and now the good news is this: he's emerged from this financial difficulty. I'm sure you read the article in GQ about him. That he, now mm-hmm. he is actually going to choose films that are to his liking that he'll be able to do. So he says he's going to work more sparingly. Maybe go back to his roots, more independent films like that. So. Uh, I hope I hope to see it. I hope he just he's proud of the films that he's making. He's been a great actor a long time. One thought on Raising Arizona. I'm glad you included the nugget that him and Joel Cohn didn't necessarily see eye to eye. I would have thought they'd get along great, but at one point Joel Cohn said, you know, I could get Kevin Costner for this movie. That was a little surprising. Yeah, I think yeah, the Coens tend to either work with people all the time or only once, and, and Cage falls falls into the only once category. Uh, I think he's wants to do what he wants to do, and I think you know, and they want they're very demanding. You know, whatever they did, it worked. And I also think if you look at his, there's all kinds of stories about him being bratty on sets, like early in his career, right? Uh, like up through Vampire's Kiss. Then after a certain point. Uh, it's basically total professional shows up on time, you know, you know, just couldn't couldn't ask for for a more committed actor. He really does seem to kind of snap into uh, total pro mode uh, fairly early in his career after some after some tumultuous shoots. Yeah, I've never seen Peggy Sue Get Married. I haven't seen The Cotton Club, but like I said, the introduction, I, I loved Honeymoon in Vegas as a kid. I thought it was a really funny, charming movie. And you're right, he has that era where he was nice guy. That I liked that film noir era, Nick Cage, Red Rock West, uh, Leaving Las Vegas, stuff like that. But then he's, listen, if the mark of an actor is to have different aspects to your acting, if you want to prove you can do all different genres, then there's no question Nicolas Cage by that by that note, should be proven as a great actor, right? His versatility is unquestionable. It's also what made him uh, an interesting subject for a book. It's like, you know, he's he's kind of in everything, in every sort of movie. You know, the, the action star films, the action action films were made him a huge star. It's kind of a blip in some ways in the filmography uh, that kind of distorted people's perception of him and what he could do. But, you know, you, you name it, he's done it. 
You name it, he's done it. That should be the name of the book. But uh, your title is still great. <laughs> Age of Cage, four decades of Hollywood through one singular career. A big time thank you to Keith Phipps. Go out and buy the book. It's terrific. If you're a fan of Nicolas Cage, it's perfect timing as he's making his comeback right now. And Keith has written an excellent tribute to Cage's work. Uh, of course, known as Nicholas Coppola. For those who don't know, he is indeed Francis Ford Coppola's nephew. There is some stuff about that way. He changed his name to Nick Cage. So lots of great nuggets in there. Thanks so much, Keith. Appreciate you. Thanks for having me. This was great fun. All right, thanks so much again to Keith Phipps. Check out the book, Age of Cage. They were uh, kind of to send me that book uh, along the way, and I really did enjoy it. Hope you enjoyed that interview. Now time to talk about because we want to make this the comedy episode. We started with Apatow. We're ending with A Fish Called Wanda. In London, four very different people teen up on a jewel heist then try to double-cross one another for the loot. Complicated by their efforts to fool a very proper barrister. It's directed by John Charles Crichton, excuse me, and by John Cleese, who's uncredited. John Cleese also co-wrote it. I guess it helps if you're a big fan of Monty Python. Chris, you ever been to Monty? And it's well before your era, but Monty Python guy, no? No. Yeah, so no. you know, Monty Python, spam a lot. I don't know if you've ever seen this show. Obviously, Monty Python, the, the Holy Grail, amazing. I have friends who are like gigantic Monty Python fans. It predates me a little bit as well, but I remember loving Fish Called Wanda. I was 10 years old when it came out. My mom's family, you know, she grew up in England. She moved there when she was 10, so I have lots of cousins in England. So the reason I really love this movie is because there's got so many jokes when it comes to Americans versus Brits. And, of course, John Cleese, is the main British actor, along with Michael Palin, who's got this unbelievable stutter. And the Americans are represented by Jamie Lee Curtis and Kevin Klein. So you've got lots of, I guess at this point, maybe predictable jokes. That's why I was curious if Chris was going to watch it, because it might feel a little dated right now. Oh, let me guess. The British people are stiff, upper crust, refined, (laughs) snooty. The Americans are vulgar and, you know, crass. But at the time, I thought it was really funny and really hit its mark. What's shocking about the film, again, is that an actor actually won an Oscar for a comedy. Like, just imagine if uh, any, any number of actors, Steve Carell won an Oscar for the 40-year-old version. Like, that just doesn't happen. Like, you never get comedies recognized. Imagine if Bradley Cooper was nominated or Zach Galifianakis for The Hangover. Like, the Academy never does this. So the fact that Kevin Klein actually won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, not just a nomination, he's incredible as Otto. Just an incredibly funny character. He's uh, with Jamie Lee Curtis, even though publicly they pretend that they are just brother and sister, but they are uh, paramours together. The fact this is a guy who gets off the smell of his own body odor. Like when he used to calm himself down, he literally lifts up his armpit, gives a big whiff <laughs> like that. Um, the way he turns on Jamie Lee Curtis is by speaking Italian. So like they'll be in bed and he just starts saying, Rigatoni, Chef Boyardee. Just speaking with a time accent, she's getting turned on by it. And then when he, when he climaxes, he, he becomes cross-eyed like it's one of the funniest things you've ever seen just oh he just goes down um Jimmy Lee Curtis later on gets turned on by John Cleese speaking Russian because he's like oh Italian it's not that great a language more, more like <laughs> Russian she's like oh my god she's playing with herself he's ridiculous <laughs> a lot of sexual humor in this movie which again I was 10 maybe I saw it when I was 11 or 12 definitely probably too young to understand much of the jokes which I now do but if you want a great comedy, if you're a Monty Python fan, just for the performances alone, I mean, John Cleese is such a uh, great comedic actor. I mean, you look at those Monty Python sketches, you know, silly walks, now for something completely different. Holy Grail is still a great comedy that holds up. The fact that guy's got coconuts when they're walking, um, it's a really, really funny movie. So check out A Fish Call One. Again, British versus American. It's kind of like, you know, you talk about comedies where characters don't fit, they're out of place. You call that comedy what? A fish out of water concept? Well, in this case, it's a fish called Wanda. 
us. I think it's a very clever play on words what they're trying to do. The Brits and the Americans trying to coexist. Should have watched that instead of the bubble. Yeah, and now that I think about it, the fact you only got 20 minutes through the bubble, you really should have watched Fisco One. I, I think you would have enjoyed it. Uh, a couple of reviews here. Peter Travers of People Magazine putting heart and heat into a film that could have easily slid by on silliness. Cleese proves himself a master actor. Jay Boyer of Orlando Sentinel. Somehow the movie manages to do the impossible. It makes John Cleese less than hilarious. Ah, oh, boo! You suck, Jay. And Sheila Benson of the Los Angeles Times. Low comedy at high speed. It pretends to be a caper movie about a smooth London jewel heist and its infinitely complex aftermath. Actually, it's a smart farce about ingrained cultural differences. The scene where Michael Palin, again, has a terrible stutter, and he loves this fish called Wanda, where Kevin Klein starts eating each fish in the fish tank to get an answer to him is amazing. The, the way that Michael, he's trying to get the words, and he literally puts the fish in his mouth, and he swallows the fish, and goes, mm, stay away from the black ones. Those guys are salty. And this guy is having a heart attack. Like He loves his fish more than anything. Yeah. It's just the, the physical comedy that like Klein, mm-hmm, he's, got the, he's, got, he's got the tail of the fish in a safety deposit box, mm-hmm, eating the fish, it's, it's so funny. Also, great physical comedy. John Cleese at one point is prancing around the apartment taking his clothes off. So he's throwing his shirt. This is when he's speaking Russian. At one point, takes his boxers off and the apartment door opens and it's a family, again, stiff, upper crust British family, two kids, like 10 and 8. They're like, oh, and he's like, oh, what are you doing here? Like, oh, we, we rented this home. And he grabs the nearest thing to him, which is a framed picture of the wife who has opened the door and puts it over his <laughs> private area. <laughs> like a naked man. And all of a sudden, a family walks in and he grabs a picture of the woman who he's looking at and puts it over his private part. <laughs> I was dying. That's it is, great. It is high comedy. Now I want Chris to go back and watch A Fish Called Wanda and hopefully he'll review it for us in a couple of weeks. But it's a great movie. For me, believes. Really, really funny movie. All right. Thank you once again to Keith Phipps. Thank you to Chris Cody for watching, at least attempting to watch The Bubble. <laughs> Hopefully, we'll get John Apatow uh, on the podcast at a different time. Next week, we're back with Winning Time. Everyone's been asking me, hey, what do you think of Winning Time? Don't worry. Me and Chris are caught up to date. We're going to talk about Winning Time. And the HBO. oldest movie we've ever reviewed. Yeah, we're going, we're going really <laughs> deep in the playbook for this one. Plus, plus Chuck Klosterman is going to join us. Yes. Uh, author of the 90s. Cannot wait. Guy's a brilliant writer, funny guy. It's going to be awesome. So until then, I'll see you at the movies. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine. Stop noticing. But you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour 3-Month Emergency Food Kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com